millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to the Progressive Britain podcast. This is the review show for episode 27 on Shani's Law with guest Steve Reed. I'm Progress Deputy Editor Connor Pope and I'm with Progress Director Richard Angel to look through some of the responses from listeners. We had quite a bit of feedback on the topic of Shenny's Law this week. Secular Carer on Twitter messaged to say that the role of police and mental health workers shouldn't be confused in this discussion, but did say that reducing the number of deaths in mental health settings is a really important goal. I'm guessing from their uh, Twitter bio that they are a mental health carer. I think I think Steve's Bill does try and make that distinction, I yeah. think, to be fair to him. There was a particular role about how the police came in and their use of force, and that part of the provisions in his bill is that they must turn on their cameras when doing that. But I think it is important that the institution and the mental health facility has a strategy as an organisation for reducing the use of force. Because ultimately, mm. of course, it was them that called the police, which meant they were there and they were the people who used the force against Shenny in this regard. But also one of the things that Steve was saying that I was absolutely shocked by in the podcast is that you can use force against a mental health patient without any training or prior experience of having done it before. And that surely must change. And therefore, the institution has a role in its own staff and when it deploys essentially the strength and the force of the state. So I think while they shouldn't be, uh, they should be distinct, often they are used together. Actually, on the point of the institutions, Trish Oliver got in touch to point out that Sheffield NHS has already made great steps towards eliminating the use of restraint in mental health services. They have the lowest use of restraint in the country. And figures last year showed that the method of face-down restraint, which I think is the most common but quite controversial one, had not been used in 18 months there after conscious efforts to eliminate its use. Well, that's amazing, isn't it? Yeah, and Steve, Steve got back in touch to say that actually Sheffield NHS is a really good example. And what Shenny's Law aims to see is that replicated across the country. But it really does show, I think, that it has to be a conscious effort and an implemented rule rather than just hoping that the use of restraint will die out and that is why legislation is so important. Yeah I think that's amazing and to have as a beacon there that I mean one of the things that Steve was saying is that the figures show a difference between 5% and 50% use of force with no idea about why that's happening and if Sheffield is a beacon for this I think he also mentioned Merseyside was another 
good example yeah, where yeah, yeah. They're, they're better better practice in the field that they must be held up so that others can show because i imagine for some people uh, not least because i'm sure austerity has hit these people are time poor and have got many other concerns and will be wanting to do their best in the provision of their service i think anyone's doubting that is it might not feel that it's very possible to have an alternative to the way they're working and holding up merseyside or sheffield or these really good examples i think can be important ways to show change but also to say to the government look there are places that are already getting this right. You need to harmonise this so that we can all catch up is a really good message. If anyone is particularly interested in this subject, we will be having a guest edit from Steve Reid on the Progress website in June before the legislation goes back to be debated again in the House of Commons on June 15th, I think. Yeah, so that would be a really good thing. Maybe we should try and get somebody from Sheffield to yeah. write about the example there because I think that's a really good one. I was really pleased. Somebody stopped me when I was going into the Tube at Westminster to say that they were, you know, listened to this, this edition um, of the podcast were totally shocked by the experience that Steve was talking about, that the experience of the family, uh, I think as we said originally, that not only have they had this awful injustice happen against them, but that essentially the state had conspired to stop them getting just basic answers, let alone justice for, for Shenny in this instance. And they've had to go all this way from 2010 now to 2018 to try and push for this legislation. And now the government are playing it and using it as a political football. They were absolutely shocked that that was the state of play. I think we all kind of, we all know that there are big problems in the mental health sector, but I was shocked by some of the examples that Steve was saying. And I followed it a bit, written about it before and was very keen to have him on. And I think others are as well. And it was really sweet that somebody stopped me to have that conversation. And also I got somebody who just texted me saying, really thoughtful edition of the podcast this week. So that was quite nice. So Fantastic. Well, th this week was also the 20th anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement, which obviously is one of the most incredible achievements of, I think, any Labour government. To mark this on progress, we had articles from the SDLP leader, Colm Eastwood, and former Northern Ireland Secretary Peter Hayne, both of which warned about the impact of a hard Brexit on the Irish border and through that on, on the Good Friday Agreement. We've also recently had pieces from um, Irish Labour leader Brendan Howlin and had an in-conversation with Tony Blair's Chief of Staff Jonathan Powell, which um, also went up as a Progressive Britain podcast, which you can listen to. But how blasé people are being about the Good Friday Agreement especially this week, just seems remarkable, doesn't it? It has been. Of course, there's been the revelations about Barry Gardner's comments to one of the, the, the German Stiftungs in Brussels, where he's been particularly dismissive, which I think is disappointing, not least because... He, seemed to, he, he appeared to be suggesting that people were trying to play up the Irish border as an issue in order to try and derail Brexit, essentially, I think. Yeah, and that just seems to be a remarkable thing. Tony Blair was on the Today programme this week and had this kind of proposition put to him. And what was quite sweet about it is he had the kind of benefit of the doubt for what Barry said. And I don't, I'm not sure that he did say that. And, you know, the, he, this was somebody who was a Northern Ireland minister under Tony Blair while lots of this work was still ongoing. And it turned out the audio was very clear about what he'd said. Actually, I think that's a really important point. It's, while it was still ongoing, the idea that suddenly... Everything was fine from mid-April 1998 and that issue was just sorted is complete rubbish. And actually lots of work still goes on today to ensure that 
the brilliant achievement of the Good Friday Agreement can still exist. It needs work. It always needs work. It is a process. It is not a kind of just a line. We've not had um, devolved government in Northern Ireland for 15 months or so now. Still some of the issues that were to be sorted out in the Good Friday Agreement, the Language Act, for example, the Irish language stuff, is still ongoing. It still hasn't been reconciled. But that's the nature of brokered peace. The point of the Good Friday Agreement and why it is so different in approach to what others in the party wanted to take is it wasn't about one side winning and the other side losing. It was about a shared peace. And I think that's a really important part of it. One of the things that I thought was amazing about what Jonathan Powell said is about the central purpose of the Good Friday Agreement was to try and diminish the need to exert one identity over another. So by being able to have a quite porous border, didn't matter what side you lived on, whether what community or religion or faith that you resided with or or identified with, that that had a diminished importance because that the flow was suddenly opened up. So you didn't have to entrench yourself in an identity politics to go about living your life. And the, the ability for that to garner peace was the most important part of the whole thing. And that's why the Brexit stuff and the Irish border issues does come back because if you can't kind of walk your dog over the boundaries and come back because it suddenly that is a a meaningful act to do in the way that currently it is a casual act, that does start to change the relationship. You know, I have family who live in the Republic and work in Northern Ireland and get, you know, essentially spend their money in euros and earn it in pounds. And it's, it's totally seamless for them. And any sense that that won't carry on will have huge impact. Yeah. And it's quite sad, actually, that Tony Blair, in a week when what we should have been doing is essentially celebrating something that was so incredible um, in Tony Blair's government, he's had to go on the Today programme, essentially, essentially Defend defending the achievement, it, which, which, which seems ridiculous. And, and through all of this, what should have been, you know, a kind of celebratory week, we also forget some of the other people who were involved in that because we're so stuck in the kind of like politics of the now of it. We can't actually look back and appreciate the fantastic work that Mo Molum, who's barely been mentioned this week, it, it seems, and who had an integral role in this. Her book is one of the most remarkable things. I think it was the only book that she ever wrote while she was alive. And she kind of opens it up by saying, I've never written a book before. But it's just, it's amazing outpouring of Mo Molum honesty, which for anyone who had the pleasure of meeting <laughs> her was, was her kind of default setting the only time I met her she called a Tory a very rude word and it was one of the best experiences of my life the- yeah, I, I met her as a child once and uh, I think she she didn't really have the kind of um, separation between how you talk to children and adults that I think many people do <laughs> this is like one of my favorite things is like these stories about when she would like go into the meetings with various officials and like they'd either be sexist towards her. How do we refer to you? Is it Miss or Mrs? And she'd, Doctor will suffice. <laughs> and then she'd go in and throw uh, her wig off like and put her feet on the table. And and they uh, and was it was it the DUP hated leader? What was his name? Um, Paisley mm. couldn't bear her because she drank whiskey and like the devil's milk. I think he called it. And, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but but her book is remarkable in it. And one of the things that was remarkable is that when she got given her Northern Ireland team by Blair, that she essentially reorganised the team internally and made one of them essentially a full-time economy minister because she's not going to get any peace if these people don't have jobs. And it was a really integral part of building Northern Ireland. That's not something that's in an agreement. That's not something that has a start or an end date, the kind of prosperity that goes with that, that is being put at risk by Brexit. So it, it is sad that that is having to be defended. I think it is worth, though, pointing out that 
In that agreement, it hardwired other of Labour's achievements. For example, the Human Rights Act, which just a few years ago, the Tories were obsessed about trying to abolish until they realised it was an integral part of the Good Friday Agreement. And why? Because sometimes the inalienable right of minorities to be able to annoy and frustrate you or to have civil liberties when it's unpopular is sometimes the most important part of a democratic society. And it was held up by both sides as a way of ensuring that justice would prevail when they were sharing peace. And that seems to me to be a really good thing. And it's therefore, hopefully, if the if Brexit doesn't ruin the Good Friday Agreement, it won't then have the impacts on stuff like the Human Rights Act. So, you know, those people who are indifferent about whether Labour is in government or not, or is waiting for it to be pure enough to deal with all the problems, not just some of the problems, I think this week is a time to reassess that. Anyway, plenty of stuff on the Progress website on the Good Friday Agreement this week. Now, my pub quiz question this oh. week... And what was the public question that you asked, it was, uh, <laughs> it was, which former Prime Minister was once canvassed, phone canvassed during a general election, according to Tony Benn's diaries? And the answer is? The answer was Jim Callaghan. Did you get that one? I, I, it was my best guess. I, I didn't know authoritatively. But to be fair, if, if it was in Tony Benn's diaries, he stood down in 2001. There wasn't many candidates, yeah, yeah. a former Labour Prime Minister, during his time in public service for it to have been. So I think Jim Callaghan... Oh, good who good launched, logic there. Good logic. It was Jim Callaghan was probably the best bet. And Jim Callaghan launched Progress when it was created back in 1996. Oh, brilliant. He, um, apparently he was called up uh, during the 97 election and asked whether he had thought about getting more involved in politics. I think he's brilliant. <laughs> presumably, presumably the person on the phone just saw James Callaghan and just rang up. I'm not sure I necessarily would have presumed that that and was the former we've all done the phone canvassing where you just trudge through that list. Like yeah, the, uh, I mean, I quite like phone canvassing. I hate thinking about it. I hate the kind of preparation of going. But when I'm there, I quite like it and kind of <laughs> rattle through. And you don't really think... Partly I just punch in the number and then look who it is. And yeah. like, oh. <laughs> this is a former Prime Minister. I imagine that person was slightly shocked, but um, yeah. but very pleased to have spoken to a great man who did some great things for our country. Anyway, congratulations to Ian French, Kevin Moore and Will Tucker, who got that right. Do send your name and address to office at progressonline.org.uk and we'll stick a mug in the post for you. Commiserations to at Pirate Darcy on Twitter, who got in touch to say that they hope it wasn't Tony Blair. <laughs> he hadn't been by that point, I think, the, uh, uh, a, a, a former prime minister. Well, look, if you enjoy this podcast, whether it's the review show or the main edition, please make sure you subscribe to the podcast. Please do leave a rate and review. It's the best way of not just you hearing it and getting it straight to your phone, but the people who don't currently hear our message, knowing that progress is fizzing with ideas and talking about the important issues of the day. Thank you for listening. You've been listening to the Progressive Britain podcast with Connor Pope and Richard Angel. The music is When in the West by Blue Dot Sessions, licensed under Creative Commons. And this episode was produced by Carolyn Crampton.